is so wonderful to be here with you today. We have started uh, walking around the letter of Paul to the Philippians. And by that, I mean we literally are traveling to Philippi. We are sending postcards to Philippi from the church in Philippi. This is a joyous letter that Paul has written to friends in a church that he planted many, many years ago. And so we are imagining ourselves on a tour, walking around this ancient city of Philippi, looking at the buildings and the places and the river and the jail and all these places that we now feel that we know, that we're getting to know. But Philippi is so much more than just visiting buildings in a city. Philippi is made up of Philippians, the people of Philippi. And so it is that as we're walking around these verses, these chapters, that we're actually meeting the people. We're meeting the church in Philippi. And so we're continuing with that today, continuing to take verse by verse, chapter by chapter, these words that Paul has written to friends to let them know how he's doing, to find out how they're doing, to check in. And so today, the verses that we are going to be exploring, walking through, are Philippians chapter 1, 27 through Philippians chapter 2, 11. It's a longer passage of scripture. There's at least two, if not three different portions, what we might call pericopes. And we're going to do them in order. But before we do that, I want to draw your attention to something that is so central to the entire letter of Philippians, so central to the entire New Testament, so central to our faith, our Christian faith, that I want to start and just draw your attention. So if you have your Bibles, would you open to Philippians chapter 2? If you're on your cell phone, if you're using the, the Bible app, you version, even scroll there. You can get there and you can see. I want you to look at the page. I want you to look at what's different on your Bible page. You'll see that as Paul is writing normally, it's in blocks the way we do paragraphs. And yet, when we get to Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, verses 6 through 11, they're indented which means this is something other than what's come before and other than what comes after. This is a portion of this letter that is known as the Christ hymn. It's a song that Paul is quoting here in the middle of the chapter. People, uh, scholars believe that Paul is actually quoting from ancient teaching of the first church of course, he would have been part of that within the second generation. But there was no printing press at this time. There were letters uh, written by hand, but there was no, um, there was not much literacy. People learned what they learned from an oral tradition, and there just simply is no better way of learning and remembering something than by setting it to music. And so many people believe that this is a song of the first church, a song that contains all we need to know about Jesus. And so as we come to these verses, I want you to know that there's already a song playing. You know how you can enter a room and you're not quite aware that there's music, but there's music playing in the background here. 
And so just to, um, to go with a little bit of a metaphor, to bring you into the, the ambiance of this music, I want you to imagine that we all know each other because we love John Lennon. Okay, just Beatles fans, go with me. Uh, who doesn't love the Beatles? So let's just imagine that all of us gathered here today are here because we love John Lennon. And we first met at a concert. Uh, maybe it was a cover band, but we all met. Maybe it was huge. Maybe there were 10,000 of us there. Maybe there were 100,000 of us there. Maybe some of us were at the original concert, one of the original concerts of the Beatles when John Lennon was playing. And, uh, and we just have this shared experience. And then year after year, all of us got together again. We got together again because of our shared love for John Lennon, for the Beatles. And of course, we would talk about that night, about that concert, about, oh, it rained or it was stormy or gosh, it was so hot. We would remember those particular details, but we were there because of one person, John Lennon. And then after time, we stopped meeting together, things happened, and we started writing letters. And we would remember things, and then we'd get together again, and we'd all get together, and we would talk about these nights. We'd have individual conversations. So I want you to imagine many, many conversations, tens, hundreds, thousands of conversations as we all get together to talk about who we love, John Lennon. And then certainly without fail, someone is going to say the phrase, well, all you need is love. And a hush falls over the room. And it's followed by Dun, da, 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 da. And within the very next moment, everyone sings, all you need is love. Dun, da, 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 da. All you need is love, love. Love is all you need. And all of a sudden, 10,000 people, 100,000 people who were having individual conversations, who were speaking from their own experience, are gathered into one song, the John Lennon song. Now take all of that that we just imagined and imagined one song that is the Christ song. By the way, a little fun fact, if you Google the Christ song, it comes up as in Christ alone, a song that we often sing here, a beautiful song in Christ alone. But if you Google the Christ hymn, it comes up with Philippians 2, 6 through 11. And you see the song and the hymn are related. They're not two different things. They're the same story of Christ. The ancient hymn echoes forward, teaching generations of people to sing this song, to know it, to remember it. And then the new song, the contemporary song, echoes back in time, echoing back the refrains of that teaching, putting it in new language, putting it to new music. And yet it's the same song, the same hymn. So as we gather, I want you to hear a song, the Christ song, the Christ hymn, the one song that gathers us with one mind. And so as we begin in these verses, beginning in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says, only live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Okay. Live your life, right? I'm not going to go every single word, but there's a couple of things that we're going to catch as we go. There are people who have a life, but they don't live it. 
There are people that shuffle along, not embracing the abundance of life that Christ came to give us. In Deuteronomy, Moses says to the people through God, speaking for God, he says, look, I have put before you today life and death. Choose life. Friends, I want you to choose life. If you hear nothing else today, choose life. Live life. Live your life. Because Christ gave it to you. And so Paul says, live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Oh, I'm supposed to live in a certain sort of worthiness, a conduct that equates to the gospel. Wow, now I have to stop and think, what have I done this morning that already has not been like that? What have I done that uh, is not worthy of the gospel? And so when Paul begins his uh, this passage of scripture, this passage in his letter to the Philippians, it's a reminder, live your life, but live it in such a way that it's worthy of why we're here. Live your life in a manner that's worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or whether I am absent and hear about you, I will know that you are standing firm in one spirit. So let's stop there for just a moment. Paul is writing to the Philippians from a Roman jail. He is close to being martyred for his faith in Rome. He probably senses that. He's not writing to tell the Philippians that. He's writing to say, I'm rejoicing in my circumstances. But he is, he is saying, I may not come back to you. But whether I do or not doesn't matter because all I want to hear is that you are standing firm and that you are standing firm in one spirit. Now, one spirit is a fantastic phrase because it takes us back to the very beginning of the church, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. When the Holy Spirit fell on those who were gathered, the Holy Spirit fell on those who had been told to wait for the coming of Christ, the, the ascended Christ who came back and walked among these people who had followed him in the flesh. Now he's returning to them in the Spirit. The Holy Spirit fell and it says, now the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. That phrase is the same phrase here. Paul wasn't there. Paul has been taught this by what's been repeated and passed on to him. But these words are the same. And Paul is now teaching this to his friends in Philippi. Be of one spirit. And that is through the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I want to know that you are striving side by side with one mind for the faith of the gospel, that you are not letting anything come between you, that you are a team, that you are friends, that you've got one intention, that you are living your lives worthy for the gospel, and that you are doing it in community, that you are doing it with each other, and that that alone makes a difference. He says, I want to know that you are in no way intimidated by your opponents. What? What opponents? I thought this was a letter of friendship. What, why are we talking about opponents? Oh, let's go back and remember where we are in Philippi. You may remember, or maybe you're hearing for the first time today, that Philippi 
is a Roman city. There was no synagogue in this city. There were no Jewish people in this city that Paul could go to when he first arrived. We are as far into Roman land, the Roman Empire, as we can go. As a matter of fact, Philippi is where retired military generals went to live the rest of their days. It is an outpost of the empire. It is filled with people who know and believe that Caesar is Lord. And so when you, a Philippian, you weren't a, a Jewish person, you were a, a, a pagan convert to the word of Christ. You are now in the middle of an empire that is not altogether pleased with hearing you, with you saying, Christ is Lord. You are surrounded by the people who you just were, but, but somehow now you are removed from them. Now you are not at war with them, but they don't like what you are saying. Your message, Christ is Lord, completely contradicts what they have been told. You see, the Roman Empire believed in the cult of Caesar. So the cult of Caesar believed that the entire imperial family, at the point of their deaths, were turned into gods. The Greek word for this change is apotheosis, apotheosis. And it's that these people were people, but at death they became gods. This was their hope, by the way. The imperial family had a hope that this would happen. The rest of the people not in the imperial family were without hope in the world. So apotheosis was the hope that these leaders, these Caesars, would become like gods, and somehow that would carry over into the culture around us. The Philippians, now believers in Christ, no longer believed that. They believed something different, which we are going to get into in just a moment. But there are opponents that are around them, and Paul wants to know that they are not afraid, that they don't need to back away from what they now know to be true, that they are steadfast, that they are confident, that they don't need to be afraid. Paul is talking about their opponents, and he said, for them, this is evidence of their destruction, but of your salvation, and this is God's doing. There was a, a friend of ours, a friend of Belair Churches, a pastor from Egypt that was here recently, just a, a couple of weeks ago. And we were asking him about, gosh, tell us about what's going on in the Middle East. We've all been so focused on uh, Afghanistan and Christians in Afghanistan and uh, Christians that are suddenly finding themselves surrounded by opponents, and this pastor from Egypt said, in Egypt, in many parts of the Middle East, at these inflection points that may feel very fearful, that the church doesn't actually need to be afraid. The church actually needs to be patient and prayerful. And what he described is that when there are these moments where there is a, a crackdown of another faith, where, where things get smaller and stricter, that the people that are a part of that actually find themselves needing to move out of it, wanting to move into something where there is more life, more love, more hope for them 
And so rather than the Christian church in this culture feeling that it needs to go to war, but share more of that, like we need to do something that actually they need to wait because God is doing something. And he told the story a few years ago when there was a, a migration of refugees out of the Middle East. Many of them went to Europe. And he told the story of many churches in Europe putting out signs that said, you are welcome here. And we just paused with that idea. These are people that are now homeless, wanderers in the world, having to flee from their homes, nowhere to go, and all of a sudden finding welcome from people they don't know, a faith that they don't share, and yet they start going into these churches that have opened their doors and said, come, come, you need a community. You need a place where you're safe. Come, come. And this pastor described that these refugees from this, from this Middle Eastern environment came into these churches, that they were invited and they came because of love. There were no strings attached to the invitation. They didn't have to become Christian before coming to the church. None of us have to become Christian before coming to the church. Jesus Christ is inviting you to come to him, to this church, to any church that is a church of Jesus. And so there in Europe, these refugees were coming and they were drawn in by love. And our friend, our, our pastor friend said they were drawn in by love, but they stayed because there was hope. When they came in, they found hope. And then they became Christian. And he went on to say, it so often happens in this Middle Eastern environment, these refugees from the Middle East, that God loves to accompany new believers, those who are emerging believers with signs, wonders, and miracles. And he described that as these churches in Europe opened their doors and said, come, come, come into where we are, into this place of refuge for you, that they were accompanied by signs, wonders, and miracles of God as they gave their lives to Christ. And that in this, the life of the church was renewed, was reborn, that something vital and powerful and holy was happening in a church that had done nothing other than say, come. And so Paul is saying to the Philippians, don't be afraid. You might think that this is very fearful situation. These Roman military people surrounding you do not be afraid and do not stop declaring that Jesus is Lord. Declare that in love. Declare that in hope. Don't have any strings attached. Be good neighbors. Be good citizens. Be good business people. Be the church at work. And let God move in you. He said, this is God's doing. And then Paul goes on and says to the Philippians, for he has graciously granted to you the privilege, not only of believing, but of suffering. And here Paul speaks of two privileges that God gives to all believers. The privilege of believing. It's in, uh, uh, 
Galatia, uh, the letter to the Galatians, I'm sorry, the letter to the Ephesians, that Paul talks about this gift from God. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. This is a gift from God. It is not a result of works so that no one can boast. The gift of faith is a gift of God. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. It's something that God graciously privileges us with. He gives us the gift of faith. If you're praying for the gift of faith, would you know that God wants to meet you in that prayer? And God also gives us the privilege of suffering, the privilege of suffering. How can that be a privilege? Well, Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount talks about the blessing of suffering. In the Beatitudes, we'll get there in a minute. In the Beatitudes, Jesus himself, speaking to one of his largest crowds ever, says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on and he said, blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, says Jesus. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Hmm, still don't know that that sounds like good news, Jesus. I'm so I'm rejoicing because those, I'm, I'm gonna be just like the prophets. A lot of those prophets died. And what Jesus is saying, rejoice and be glad because God was moving in the prophets in a way that was special and profound, deeply personal, deeply enlivened in them. God can't do through you what he's not doing in you. The presence of God in you, as it is enlivened, as it is lived out, as it fills everything you think and do, will cause you to not be in sync with culture, to not be in sync with members of your own family. And, and you may experience suffering in that. There is suffering all around the world by Christians who are living out their faith. Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. You are part of a holy priesthood where God has called you to suffer for his sake. And we're gonna talk more about suffering in just a moment. He, he says, uh, he's given you to believe in Christ and to suffer for Christ. And, and Paul says, you're having the same struggle that I had and that you are now seeing that I still have. And so he's giving them courage even out of his own circumstances. Now, moving into chapter two, verse one. Paul says, so then, if there is any encouragement in Christ, so he's just finished talking about suffering for Christ. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there is any cheer, if anything about love makes you cheerful, if there is truly any sharing in the spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind. Have the same love. Be in full accord and of one mind. Now let's just imagine for a moment, let's just imagine Pastor Drew saying to us, hey church, 
You know what you could do to make me super happy? Uh, you could just complete my joy today. And we're all like, yeah, tell us, Pastor Drew, what can we do to make you happy? We want to make you happy. And he says, here's what you can do. You can be of the same mind. And we're like, yeah. Wait, what, with them? Be of, like, oh, wait, be of the same, be of the same love? Like, uh, Drew, I'm not really sure, like, I'm not really sure how we're supposed to do this. Could you say a little more? This is what Paul is saying to the Philippians of make me happy and do these things. And I guarantee you the Philippians were looking around the same way and going, how can we possibly be of one mind, of one heart, of one spirit? How does that happen? Paul goes on to tell them how th- this can happen. He says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That makes sense, yes. And yet, aren't we all at times drawn into selfish ambition? And so we're gonna come back to that. Paul goes on and he says, but in full humility, regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. And all of us, both here today and those in the Philippian church are still going, I'm there and I don't know how to do that. I don't know how to do that. I get that we're all the same in you, Jesus, but haven't you noticed we all have different opinions? We all have different hopes. We live different lives. How do you want us to do this? And herein is one of the things that we need to catch. It's that we are being invited into a a paradox. There's a commentator named Lynn Kohick. And she says, often the question that comes to us as we start to look toward this Christ hymn, toward how Christ did this, the paradox is whether or not this question is, is whether we are supposed to learn this as doctrine or whether we're supposed to live it as an example. And Lynn Kohick says, such a query begins at the wrong spot and offers an incomplete set of choices. The key is to recognize that we need to participate in Christ. We need to participate in Christ. What does that mean? It means when Paul says, let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. Let the same mind be in you that was in Jesus Christ. We believe that when the Holy Spirit comes to us, that the mind of Christ dwells in us. That we don't have to try to learn something outside of us, that we don't have to try to conform ourselves to other people, that we actually have to remember that the thoughts of Christ are alive in us through the Holy Spirit, and we attune ourselves to the thoughts, to the mind of Christ. Now let's stop and let's just look at this word, mind. It's an interesting word. The word in the Greek is phroneo, phroneo. And there's a word that we actually use often in the English language, diaphragm, that comes from the same root word, phroneo, fram, diaphragm. What it means is it's talking about your midriff. Your diaphragm is the center of where you breathe. It's the muscle that helps you gather air and expel air. It is something that regulates 
your inner life with your outer life, your diaphragm, the phroneo, the mind. It means that it's an inner part of you that has an outer expression. There is no good translation for this word phroneo in the English. There is not a one-to-one translation because we tend to come from a dualistic background. The Greeks were dualists, mind and body. And we draw uh, lines between our mind and our body, an inward sense and an outward sense, an inner self and an outer self. In the Hebrew, which is, of course, Paul's background, there was no such dualism. The Hebrews believed that there was an enfleshed spirit. There was no division between mind and body. And so when you talk about mind, it's not this ethereal thing. It's actually part of a muscle that's in your body. And what this does is it aligns visceral thought with cognitive thought. And you know what I mean by visceral thought of when you get a hunch, a gut punch, something that in your gut you know you're supposed to do, that is actually your mind and your gut working together. So we have visceral mind and a cognitive mind that are brought together in this word, the phroneo, have the same phroneo as Jesus Christ did. And now here is where we get into this beautiful Christ him. We are told by this same commentator, Lynn Kohak, that as we approach this hymn, the Christ hymn, that this grand, deep, majestic poem should take our breath away and cause us to wonder, ponder, imagine, and sing with the angels, worthy is the lamb who was slain. So let's enter into this song that's been playing in the background, the room that we entered today, this Christ song, the Christ hymn, the ancient language of the church, the first teaching of the church to tell us who Jesus is, the same mind of Christ. And it says, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. And let's stop and let's just unpack a couple of things in there. You see, there was some confusion about Jesus being the same form as God. That was hard for people to wrap their minds around. There were stories, myths of people who became gods, who started out as humans, but somehow were transformed into a god. It was easy for people in the ancient world to hear what was being told to them about Jesus and transpose that for a pagan myth. And so year after year, century after century, the church actually had to go back to this ancient teaching to clarify it. And so to say, though he was in the same form as God, form is an inner essence. The word is morphe in Greek the inner essence of the self. Jesus was in the eternal logos, the logic of God, the word that was with God and was God at the beginning. That is Christ. Christ was not begotten. He was not human who then became God by the Holy Spirit entering into him. No, he is equal. He is of the same substance 
as God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is of the same substance, begotten, not made. The word that they found for this in many, many hundreds of years was homoousion, homoousion. It's in the Nicene Creed. It took 400 years for the church to land on this definition, God from God, light from light. The very substance of God is Jesus Christ. He is God. And though he is of the same substance as God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. Now, gosh, I want to say so much about this word exploited. Exploited can also be translated as grasped. I want you to underline this word exploited because it starts to talk about human history. It starts to introduce the doctrine of sin, that equality with God is something that could be grasped. Does anybody come to mind? Somebody named Adam, somebody named Eve. You see, this word that is here for exploited. The Greek word is harpazo, harpazo. It only occurs one time in the New Testament and it's right here in Philippians. Paul is using this word very keenly to reinforce, or the the ancient church as they had it in this song, they're using this word to call to mind the first humans, Adam and Eve. Harpazo means to grasp, to seize by force, to take something that doesn't belong to you and to hold onto it tightly. In Luke 11.39, a different form of this verb is used by Jesus when he's talking to the Pharisees. And he says, you Pharisees, you are full of robbery and greed. You are full of robbery and greed. You are stealing something that's not yours. You are, you are wanting something that doesn't belong to you. And so we have in this sense all that we need to know of sin. You see, Jesus did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited. He emptied himself. Adam and Eve did regard equality with God as something to be exploited, something they could grasp, something they could take a hold of and eat, that they could ingest it. The enemy said to them, don't you want to be just like God? And they did. And so they took what they shouldn't have taken and they ate it. And with that, all of human nature was separated from God's intention for us. This is the doctrine of sin that Jesus came to rectify, to put right. And the way he put it right was by doing the exact opposite. He did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped. He let go of it. He didn't take hold of it. He emptied himself. And so I want you to catch that that selfish ambition the desire to have more than we have is how Satan actually operates in us today. We can hear Satan say to us, don't you want to have what he has? 
Don't you want to have what she has? Don't you want to grasp it? Don't you want to be as skinny as she is, as rich as he is? Don't you want to be married? Don't you want to be single? Don't you want to be a parent? Don't you want to not be a parent? Don't you want what someone else has? Take hold of it. Just grab it. And that's our human nature. Tim Keller once said in a, in a wonderful sermon of his that conceit, this word conceit, vainglory, that it sounds like we make more of ourselves, that we think more of ourselves than we ought to. But Tim Keller said that also is the exact opposite of the truth. The truth is that we think less of ourselves because God deposited glory in us. God gave us glory. But when we want what another human being wants, we let go of what God wanted us to have and we take hold of something so far less. And so this is how we spend our days thinking about ourselves, thinking about what I wish I had, thinking about what they have. And that's how we lose track of the mind of Christ in us as believers. You see, Jesus didn't do this. Jesus emptied himself. And so there is this movement of the first Adam to the last Adam. The first Adam who did seize equality with God and therein destroyed the image of God in himself. Jesus did not do this. And Jesus becomes the last Adam, the restorer of true humanity. So in his true humanity, restoring human nature, this is where he is most like God. God who is sacrificial. God who empties himself for the cause of love. It's in Romans 5, 12 through 21 that Paul says, just as through the disobedience of the one man there were made many sinners, so also through the obedience of one man the many are made righteous. This is here in this Christ hymn. And so we hear that Jesus emptied himself. That word is kenosis, the emptying. This does not mean that he, he emptied himself of his divinity. It means that he laid it down in order to restore human nature. Still fully God, still fully human. This is the nature of Christ. And so he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave, here form, he was in the form of God. Here he's in the form of a slave. Same word in the Greek, morphe. The, the Greek word for slave is doulos, which means servant. So what did Jesus become the servant of? Well, first he became the servant of God, the Godhead, the Trinity. He was on that team. He was of one mind with God the Father and God the Spirit. So he was the servant of the divine plan, the beginning the beginning of all things, what God has always, always intended to restore all things through Christ. Christ became a servant of the divine plan for all eternity. And Christ became a servant of us. I know we bristle at that. The disciples did too. They didn't want to have Jesus wash their feet. And Jesus said, unless you become like I am, you can't participate in my nature. And so we need to know that Jesus took on the form of a servant to serve us. And that service is to bring us to salvation, to come for us, to invite us 
into love and hope and community. Jesus washes our feet and says, you must become like me. He was born in human likeness and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And so we learn more here about the nature of Christ, that not only is he a self-emptying God, one who does the opposite of Adam and Eve, restoring human nature as it was meant to be, that there is extreme humility that he is humble. You see, we hear in Adam and Eve that they gave up their true nature out of ignorance, thinking that they would become like God. We hear the story of the prodigal that Jesus tells. The prodigal son gave up his true nature out of arrogance, out of thinking that he was owed something by the Father. Jesus gives up his true nature out of love, emptying himself out of love, and thus becoming the first of a harvest of many. And so Jesus was humble. Jesus was obedient. Adam and Eve were disobedient. Jesus, in his obedience to God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God's eternal plan, Jesus was obedient, even to death, even death on a cross, the most most offensive kind of death there could be. And so he gave his life in this way. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And now we arrive back where we began, the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is where we begin and this is where we end. This song of Christ enveloping the Philippians. Paul starting to hum it, then sing it, then inviting the Philippians to sing it with them. You cannot be of the same mind. You cannot be of the same heart. You cannot strive side by side in one spirit unless you conform yourselves to the image of Christ in you. That's the only way it can get done. In this room that's filled with banter about the person of of whoever John Lennon and his concert might have been, there's one song that can unite all these cacophonous voices. And so it is with Christians. We have to bring ourselves back to this song to remember this about Jesus, to meditate on these things about Jesus, his mind, his self-emptying, his obedience, his humility, his suffering, and know that that mind is in us and that in this we can do all things, that we can be this church, even as Paul was writing to his friends in Philippi, uh, Philippi, so we can be this church now today. You see, this is a call to be the church at work, which you have heard so much about. The church at work is a church of one mind, one heart, one spirit, striving together for one intention, which is to declare that Jesus Christ is Lord, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, would you sing this song? 
Would you learn this song? Would you share this song? And would it be what draws you to be the church at work? God, we ask that you would bless these words to our souls, that you would cause us to be what God has intended. We pray today that you would help us lean into one mind, one spirit, one church. God, we ask this of you in Jesus' name, amen.